Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Wait, not welcome back. All right. <laughs> you know, I had to screw up the first time. Oh, that's why I was laughing so hard. All right. <laughs> All right, here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben, and today on our panel, we have Ari. Hello. And Tessa. Hi. And our special guest for this episode is Janelle Pizarro. Janelle, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I just waved. <laughs> That's fun. Hello, I am Janelle. I consider myself a UX developer and I'm here. I'm excited. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so to start off, Janelle, actually, I'm really curious. What does being a UX developer mean to you? Because I think this is a title that doesn't really exist until recently. Yeah. So essentially for me, it means that I really like accessibility and making sure that users are happy and that they get surprised and delighted or completely don't even realize that they're actually using the application, which is my favorite. I love it when <laughs> a user just like, yeah, so I did this thing and I did that thing and then I went to the movies and I came back and that was it, right? Like, I love that they completely just disregard that they haven't even used the application. That's like my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's my goal in life is to ensure that people yeah. forget that they're actually even using the application because it becomes like such a normal part of their life that it just becomes second nature. So. And so I have to guess, so having like having come to the title of UX developer, so what was your journey like into coding? Because, you know, most people with traditional CS backgrounds are usually like software engineers. And so I'm curious what your background is that sort of led you to this hybrid role, which I'm yeah. in love with, by the way. <laughs> cool. So once upon a time, I used to be a bartender for many, many years. I did that, I think, for five years. So I managed bars and bartended like a champ, never drank. Fun fact about me as a bartender different as a developer. I used to, I started <laughs> drinking heavily as a developer. <laughs> so yeah, I started as a bartender. And then from I decided somewhere around the age of like, I don't know, I don't even remember. I didn't want to bartend anymore because, you know, it's not something that was fulfilling my life. That and, you know, my degree that I went to school for was radio broadcasting. It was just a, just everything, just, right? And so I actually just quit my job. <laughs> like I was managing a bar at Universal and gave them a quitting cake. So I printed my resignation letter on a cake and it was like, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to go learn how to code. Bye. <laughs> and I moved to a whole different city St. Petersburg and learned how to code through the Iron Yard. Oh, yeah. Boot camp. Yeah. So I did that and loved it. Like, I, I thought it was going to be like a super simple, like, oh, I'm just going to do this on the side. Like, I'm just going to, you know, make a little makeup app on the side because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a makeup app. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. And then I could just live my life the way that I'm going to live my life. And I realized, like, this was really cool, really fun. And I really enjoyed JavaScript and it was my favorite. And somewhere halfway in the, like, you know, halfway in the middle of somewhere after I stopped crying about Flexbox, <laughs> I found David Corsid and his CSS Husky. And it made me so happy. And I was like, I could just make things like this with code. <laughs> and I immediately, like from then on out, I was just, I was sold and I've been coding ever since. Like, this is my job now. This is what I do. Don't anybody talk to me about making alcohol for anybody else but myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious what everyone else's titles are. And also, Janelle, if you picked your own title, like how did you decide on UX? Because, for example, I've been like a GUI software development engineer. I've been a UI developer. I've been a UX UI developer, like all the UX names. <laughs> how about you, Are you laughing at me? What's your titles? <laughs> currently, I think currently, technically, my title is full stack slash front end engineer, Though, if we're being honest, I'm really just a front-end engineer. But then previously, I was UI UX developer. 
And then at that same company, I was senior UI UX engineer. Ooh, an upgrade when you become senior. Yeah, no, I asked for the change. Because, <laughs> you know, engineer just like sounds fancier. So yeah, better. Ben? Yeah, for me, I've run the gamut. When I started out, UX developer was definitely not a thing. I was really trying to make it a thing, but just didn't exist. So I was like, you know, technical consultant, front end developer. Then, you know, of course, developers don't get paid as much as engineers. So just front end engineer made a difference in salary, which is weird. And then I did the UI engineer bit. I think I got the UI UX title for a little bit too. And my currently my title is developer experience engineer. And so that's like the closest I've come to like, because, you know, for those who don't know, my background is in psychology. So I've always been trying to find ways to merge the UX passion into the tech. And yeah, I think this is the closest I've gotten. So I'm really excited that Janelle and others are also pushing the UX developer position, given that it did not exist when I first entered the tech industry. I love that. I mean, technically on paper, I'm a software engineer, but I just tell people that I'm a UX developer because yeah. why? Like, why? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what I do. I like making people happy. So why, why say that I'm going to do stuff that doesn't make me happy? like, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to write ternaries all day. That's what I do. I write ternaries. No. Yeah. So what would you all say is the difference between UI and UX or like, is it worth defining a difference? Like how big is the overlap? I'll start. I definitely think it's worth defining a difference because I've seen, especially in the design community, being a UI designer versus a UX designer is very, very different in terms of your responsibilities. Even within, I think, the UX realm, there's like prototyping versus research. And that's like almost completely separate disciplines. So for me, I think it is worth sort of differentiating those skill sets, not necessarily on a pay scale, just on this, just like from a skill set grouping, like information architecture perspective. So how would you differentiate them then? As far as generally speaking, I think I would say that UI developers are the ones clearly focused more on the, as the name would imply, the user interface. So probably like making sure designs look and feel a certain way. So like basically executing on certain, you know, animations and those sort of things. Whereas I think the UX developers are focused more with collaborating with the UX designers from like that research, like what happens when we think of like you know, do the modals make more sense? Do sliders make more sense? Like, I think they're the ones that are involved more, or more interested in, in those conversations. All of us end up being involved in those conversations more or less, but it's about where is your interest in thinking about and solving these kind of problems? Because as you know, for those of us who have done work with animations, like it's a deep rabbit hole to dive into how next tick works, how to make sure things trigger at the right time. And that work is very different from whether we should do animations at all or what types of animations. So I think that's, in my mind, that's the basic differentiator between the two. Yeah, I'd have to agree in a lot of senses too, right? So creating an interface doesn't necessarily tackle the why. You know, and I think user experience definitely tackles the why and should you, right? So like, should this be a form or should this not be a form? Or, you know, does every field actually need to say required on it? Or can maybe two of them say optional and we assume that the user is going to, you know, go through the entire form? Like, those are questions that user experience developers are asking before they even code, which is awesome. And I think having a user experience developer and a user experience designer is really important. Having the kind of like symbiotic relationship of of a designer and a developer together because you create more of a holistic, you know, questioning each other, right? And not in a bad way, right? You're never like, oh, you're the worst developer ever, or you're the worst designer ever. It's not like that at all. It's very much like, do we understand how our users are going to use our product? And if we don't, how do we come together to ask the user, you know, how they would use it? Or, you know, can we monitor, you know, how a user is using it now to see if maybe we can make their life a little bit easier? And you come together doing that as opposed to working separately, which I think happens a lot where the designer is like, here's, you know, the design you as a user interface developer would just implement it, right? And call it a day for asking deeper questions, I think. What exactly is the difference between a UX designer and a UX developer? 
Oh, I think that's a good question. <laughs> so in my experience, I think a UX designer is someone who is a lot more proficient at like Figma and Envision and Sketch and all those cool things. Because personally, I am not gifted in those areas. Me neither. <laughs> Same here. It's pronounced gifted, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like it's a, I am not proficient in that. And I, you know, I can make, you know, an SVG here and there to make, you know, animations and things like that from an SVG. But like the beauty of design and like creating with those tools is just an art that is beyond me and is so beautiful and I can't grasp that and it's awesome when other people can my interpretation of your artwork is what makes me a developer a UX developer as opposed to a UX designer so you know does your art speak to the actual user is how I like I make your art become a reality, right? That's how I kind of bridge that gap is like UX designer is the art and the meaning behind the art, whereas UX developer is, you know, the actual implementation of said art and making it a reality. That makes sense. I don't know why this popped into my head as you were saying that, but you all know the meme about like front end and back end or like full stack developer with the horse. And part of it is rendered really detailed. And then part of it is like a cartoon. And so I imagine that was like the designer's mock. And then the developer is like the Dr. Frankenstein that really makes a real horse that looks like that. And I was like, this is horrifying. (laughs) But yeah, I feel like when it goes from design to development to user, there's a lot of different discussions there that we might all have in common. So I'm curious what kinds of arguments or conversations that people have at work around UX. So For example, Janelle, you mentioned earlier something about validation. And I I remember on Twitter the other day, I saw someone screenshot a form with like a name input and their name was Sam or something really short. And it said the name was invalid. Or like a few weeks ago, we were talking about a feature on the app I'm working on where users can take notes. And there was a comment about how the users were using the notes wrong because their titles were really long. And like, There's probably definitely like a divide somewhere between where the user is trying to do something that the product just wasn't designed to do versus like the user doing something that the product was designed to do. And I was like, what's wrong with having long names? Like that seems more like we haven't accounted for that problem. So yeah, I'm curious how these kinds of discussions play out on everybody's teams. So for us, it happens for different like teams. It happens differently, right? So we could catch it way later, which is super fun. The team that I work on now, the application is aged is the best way I can say it. It is aged like a fine wine. So (laughs) there are, you know, things that, you know, our customers have wanted from day one that maybe we implemented very early on, but now doesn't necessarily make sense. Right. And so like a user will always find a way to get to what they're going to do. Right. So whether or not that's like a full on workaround where you're like, wow, I didn't know that that's how you use that feature. That is not how it was intended to be used. That's cool. They will always find a way. And it's kind of awesome to see like, you know, why they're doing those workarounds and what, how did we fail to give them the best experience possible. So, you know, when you're talking about like the title thing or using like the comments and things like that, you know, we have something very similar to that where, you know, users were creating notes in a title instead of creating notes where notes, there's a discussion tab. So they're putting their whole title of, you know, a document as a comment. And yeah, we're like, okay, well, how do we make comments more available to our users? (laughs) Because they're clearly, they need this feature more visible, right? So yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes me think of that meme with the like desire path and then the actual path where there's like a built-in road, but then it's faster to just walk across the grass. And so over the years, like the grass wears away. Yeah, so like I'm on the other side of, 
the app journey where we are just getting to MVP. And I feel like I'm often feeling the need to advocate for not limiting the user at this point because we don't know we don't know how the user will interact with the app yet and so you know people were proposing for example on a a data visualization limiting the user to only select comparing like four different organizations against each other out of a list of say like 20 and i said okay but what if we let them decide how much they can handle visually and if we find that like they're overwhelming themselves every single time, okay, maybe then we we talk about limiting it. But I think when you're first building an app, I think it's important to leave the borders kind of open because it's really hard to, to validate use cases when no one's using it yet. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like your job as a UX developer changes depending on where you are in an app development cycle. Full on agree. I think it also changes by like what kind of company you work for or not company you work for. So I feel like if you are in a startup, it might be a little bit different than working at a corporation versus freelancing versus consulting, right? I think another thing I find myself doing a lot right now is trying to be the ambassador between expectation and reality of the web platform. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a lot of times like they're like, well, what if we did this? And I'm like, okay, yeah, that looks cool. But let me tell you why this isn't accessible and why I strongly recommend going against this. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah, as a <laughs> part of the job as a UX developer is having an understanding of the platform and where certain interactions are going to cause problems and being able to adequately educate stakeholders on what those problems are. Yeah, that's a question that I have a lot as well is like, I've heard this saying that accessibility starts from the design, but I've never worked on an app where like, we have accessibility baked in. So like, I'm curious to learn more about like, how it works when a company does build an accessible features, like even though everybody throughout the process should be keeping an eye on it, like how do you build that into the process? And then also like in a more general sense, how do you define user needs? Because the user might not necessarily be wrong, right? But it's not the user's job to think of how to solve the problem. That's like more on our end of things before we release the app. So like, for example, mm -hmm. if the user is like, oh, this, this note-taking feature doesn't work like Excel, and I use Excel to take all my notes, make it more like Excel, then probably the next step isn't, okay, let's build Excel. But I think a lot of people, that response will probably sound familiar. So I'd like to hear more about everybody's thoughts on that and how things work on y'all's teams. I have strong feelings on this. <laughs> so <laughs> I think... So many times we misidentify a customer's problem. And a lot of that is, you know, the customer describes their problem one way. As like in this example, it's not like Excel and that's a problem for me. Okay. But the real problem is that you're unable to do some action that you would normally use Excel to do. So what is that action? The problem is they can't do that action. So we have the problem. And then solving that is the other half of that. It's, you know, how many different ways can we allow them to do this action? And does it actually address the core need? Because, yeah, we could just add it in Excel, but is that even the best way to solve their problem? Is there a more integrated way with the existing app to do it? So, yeah, a lot of times <laughs> people conflate solution with problem. <laughs> Speaking of conflation, I feel like that's kind of interesting as well, because like maybe you only have one user who's like, this should be working like Excel. And then you identify the need and it's not spread across a lot of users. So then you have to make a decision like how big an impact will this make? Does it fit in with the goals that we're going for? But then on the other side of that coin, that's an argument that I've seen used a lot to be like, this is why we don't need to focus on accessibility. So you know, for people who have advocated successfully for accessibility, like what have you used to counter that type of argument? 
Yeah. So accessibility makes I, it better for everyone. <laughs> yes, it does. So for sure, it does make it like accessibility is marvelous and wonderful. But if we just, I like to go back to a talk that I watched, I think a couple of years ago. Uh, it might have even been this year before, you know, COVID. Who can really <laughs> know? Might have been this morning. Yeah, it really could have, yeah. honestly. Mm-hmm. What is time now? <laughs> Yeah, so the, the person that was speaking was talking about how if you are trying to sell your application in all 50 states and you are really excited about it and you're going to go to market like literally next week and you as an accessibility person are like, cool, I love that idea, but what if it doesn't work in New York? The entire state of New York is not going to get your application. And they're like, well, New York has a lot of people in it and they are movers and shakers. And like, there's a lot of like really awesome people who live and work in New York and do cool things in New York. You're like, yep, it's not going to work there. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Like your, you know, client is going to be like, no, no, I, I need it to work in New York. Okay, great. Awesome. That's what accessibility is because the amount of people who benefit, who are, you know, disabled in, in some way, right? Even if it's, you know, situational disability or, you know, permanent disabilities equals the amount of people who live in New York, which is a lot of people. So to tell someone that, you know, just immediately saying like, hey, your application is not going to work in New York is almost like that kind of clicks with people. Like, oh, wow, I would like for my application to work for everyone. Great. So we need to make it accessible. That's the rule on that now. I think that has worked for me in the past, as well as just kind of putting my foot down. Even if it's like me against 50 other people, I will put my foot down, right? Because at the end of the day, making something more accessible or starting, like just even creating something new, a new feature or, you know, a Greenfield project and making sure that accessibility is baked in is going to help every developer who ever touches that code in the future. So there's a lot less tech debt when you have accessibility at the beginning, right? You're not going to have that button problem that's a 10-year-old button that's, you know, div inception for all the way down. You're not going to have that problem. It's just going to be a button. I mean, it really does help everybody. Yeah, no, having created my own inaccessible mess previously, I've and I feel really bad for whoever is currently on that project. Whoops. It's painful. It sucks. It is just so much better if you do it from the start. I have many regrets in that situation. And so now I am not going to make that mistake twice. And yeah, the what you said about putting your foot down, accessibility is a hill I will die on. And I make that very clear where I work. I was like, I will die on this hill. If you want to fight me, okay, but it will be to the death. <laughs> My earrings will 100% come off for this. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's challenging, I think what a lot of developers find with accessibility is I think another topic that I think receives similar problems like the performance talk of like making your app as performant as possible in the sense that I think we all know we want to deliver the smallest thing possible to the users. So we want to make everything the most accessible. But I think most developers get lost in how to have those conversations. And so when it seems like a binary thing, like our app is either 100% accessible or 0% versus like it's completely performant versus not performant. I think when we're trying to implement change at organizations where oftentimes, let's be honest, the stakeholders really just care at the end of the day how much money things are bringing in. And so as a result, they make poor decisions that are often unethical and you know that we often find questionable. And so I think in my experience, it's usually come down to learning to sort of create infrastructure where people are doing things that are accessible without really realizing it. So for example, using libraries like Chakra UI is a great example of like, if you have your entire code base based on like a project that is already has base components that are accessible and have them extend upon it, you've now reduced the barrier of entry of like, now I need to learn all of these things. Like, don't worry, like a specialist is taking care of it. Like you can start using it and growing your knowledge slowly. And also just to Jell's point, one of the things we found really effective is If you can find the budget, hire, they have a bunch of consultants where have a blind user use your app and then have that recorded. Obviously, like this should be part of the consulting fee or whatever. And then have that play to your stakeholders. Because I think when we just say make things accessible, let's be honest, there's just so much noise these days that people lose sense of what things mean and what to really prioritize. But I think when people humanize and can see that interaction, that struggle of someone 
not being able to use their app, it becomes a much different priority, I think, in their minds. And I think humanizing the experience can really make a difference in delivering that message to a group. Absolutely. I definitely agree. I think one of the ways that like, I know that in my current job that I have had success in telling, you know, hey, management or leadership, we need to work on accessibility is by using this pandemic as a, you know, kind of driving point. So a lot of people who are using our applications are working from home. So when you're working from home, let's say that you are not, you know, physically disabled, right? You're a quote unquote normal user, right? If you are working from home and you have children, you have to hold on to one child and you are trying to, you know, go into the application and use the application while holding a child and being distracted, that is a situational disability. And we are quite literally limiting so many people in this pandemic from using the application just by, you know, the means of, you know, trying to take care of their children or trying to be, you know, working individuals in their homes. So just even watching someone who is a mother trying to use their application, like our application while, you know, focusing on their child as well is kind of a huge thing. And and people will see that immediately and be like, well, well, I don't want that, right? I want our, this is a high ranking individual who uses our application and if they are having issues with, you know, being in their home and using our application, that's an issue. Yeah. And I feel like that ties back nicely into Ben's performance comment as well, because like a lot of people who are working from home don't have top of the line internet and they're probably paying for it out of their own pockets. And when we talk about performance, a lot of times those discussions can be coached in like, oh, the app is lagging a little bit for me on my super fast internet on my super high ends computer. But that means that it's already been causing probably a lot more severe lag on other computers and other internet connections. Yeah, and having a performant app is especially great for even other parts of like making sure that everybody can use your application, right? So, you know, people who are living in countries who don't necessarily have that kind of resource, right? So, for example, I know that I've worked, you know, in Nicaragua before and in Nicaragua, have fun with your internet, right? Like it's not a good time for you. And like to be able to use any kind of application there would be super important to me as, you know, a developer and to me as, you know, somebody who would potentially be living in Nicaragua and making the web accessible for everyone should be everyone's goal. That's how we learn, right? It's an, it's a human right to be able to, to use the internet. And I feel like as developers, we need to make sure that all humans can use the web, period. Yeah. That brings me back to a point that Ben brought up earlier that I would like to add a little more nuance to. He was talking about how stakeholders at the end of the day, they only care about money. So they're not going to care about like the stuff we're talking about right now. And I feel like to me, at least I would think, or like would hope that those are the stakeholders who only care about short-term gains. And that in theory, if you build your app to be accessible and performant, and you really care about your end users, then over the long term, you'll be more successful and more profitable. I just want to share an example of a terrible attitude towards accessibility I came across recently. So there's an open source JavaScript charting library called Plotly.js. Do not use it. I'm just going to start with that because like, if for some reason you stop listening at this very second, that's the key takeaway here. But so <laughs> we'll make it the title of the episode. <laughs> but so Plotly has an open ticket from May 24th, 2016, in which somebody is asking for the most basic keyboard accessibility of their charts. The response from one of the contributors was, it is possible we could add these in the future, but I'm not sure whether we should beyond very basic interactions. Plotly.js's main focus is on plotting the data and exposing an interface to view it. The problem here is that you think that viewing it should be the only way that you can interact with it, but data is data is data. And giving users a way to interact with the data when they can't see it, I get that this is data visualization, but data is still half of that. <laughs> 
unfortunately, that is what my company currently uses. We are trying to move away from it because no, I was heartbroken when I realized that we did not have an accessible charting library. I was like, no, but yeah, having that attitude that I only intended the user to be able to interact with it in this one way, then you're limiting it to not everyone. And also, I don't know if you know this, but like, I think something like 20% of all Americans have some sort of visual disability, whether it's just, you know, I need contacts to see well enough. So, <laughs> you know, if you happen to lose a contact that day, <laughs> but yeah, having the attitude that you only want to cater to a small portion of people is ridiculous and stop that. Yeah. And I think also just to tack on one really quick thing there, one interesting thing that I learned only maybe last year was that most blind people can see, which I think like a lot of people don't know. That is a really fun fact to, to especially like tell your stakeholders for sure. Just be like, no, no, no. They can tell that you don't care. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they can tell. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like empathy and so-called EQ or now I'm like, is it emotional quotient? I've never actually looked at the acronym. I've so always said sure. emotional quotient, but I might be wrong. Oh, I thought you were going to say, but people have been telling me. And I'm like, what people? (laughs) I feel like these are always on and off hot topics in tech. Like, do we need to care about the people side of things? Like, isn't it just about the code? What are people's thoughts on the importance of or lack of importance of empathy and like, I guess, human qualities or scare quote soft skills? I believe that empathy should be evident not only in your user interface, but also in your code. Empathy for the developer after you, empathy for yourself tomorrow, empathy for the person who ends up interacting with what you've built. I think that to be a truly great developer, empathy is the number one skill that you need to have. And with that, I quit life. (laughs) (laughs) Ari's like, now you can really stop listening. Don't use Plotly. (laughs) Empathy is important. Yes. Mic drop. <laughs> no, for sure. That, um, <laughs> that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, it should be our responsibility to make sure that everybody is, you know, like you have accessibility, like your your code is accessible, that your application is accessible. And I mean beyond, you know, accessibility just you know, for ADA compliance. I mean, accessible to every human being, right? Because we want to make sure that we are being nice people, right? Like at the end of the day, like you want to feel like you're invited to the table, to the party, to the, you know, whatever, right? And making your code accessible to anyone who comes after you, especially, you know, a junior developer, right? I think that's really important is making sure that your code is readable for any junior to be able to look at your code and be like, I get that. I see what's happening. I might not exactly know every step of what's happening, but I can generally understand what's going on and I can, you know, build on it or, you know, remove it or whatever it might be. Right. And without feeling extreme fear, I think that's super important because if you're coding for the junior developer, that's going to have to look at your code afterwards. That means that you're also coding for the senior developer who's looking at your code. Right. It goes for everybody, anybody who might actually be looking at your code. Because I know QA sometimes will be in there as well. Sometimes you have really cool technical product people who look at code as well and want to know like the deep ins and outs of why the feature is working the way that it is. And having your code be readable and having like even just functions that make sense, you know, that are human readable it's going to help everyone regardless. And that applies to your code as well. Like if you have accessible code and accessible UI, you're, I mean, wins all around really. Like you don't have to explain yourself, which is also super amazing. Like no one's going to be like, hey, so Janelle, I looked at your code and it literally looks like trash. So you need to explain it to me. <laughs> which has never happened to me ever in my life. (laughs) No, for me, like it's the smallest things that make a difference in a code base. Like, I don't know why 
my brain cannot get wrapped around this particular thing, but something I've seen in the code base I work in right now is that instead of index, they say IDX. And even though like I see it in a for loop, every time I have to stop and be like, what is IDX? Like, and it takes me like a full like 20 seconds to index in the, you know, in the index part of the for loop yet still lost on me. It's two extra letters, (laughs) y'all. Yeah. I remember when I was learning JavaScript, IDX really threw me off. And it was one of those things like I-C-Y-M-I in case you miss it or O-T-O-H. On the other hand, like those are three acronyms that I just never get. So I kept on practicing IDX until it felt okay enough, but I don't think you should have to. Or like for each, when they're like, well, the variable's right there. So each instance in the loop, I'm going to give it a single letter name. And I'm like, don't do that. Nope. Why would you do that? What are you gaining? I would rather have I than IDX. Same. same. If you abbreviate, just just go cut to the chase. One letter. Done. (laughs) We all know I. It's great. Yeah, no, the one letter in like higher order functions, that drives me insane. And I, I, I guess maybe it's because I'm so used to being descriptive with whatever the argument is that I pass in. Like if I am working with an array of, geez, okay. Say it's an array of colors. I am going to say color and use color as the argument I pass in because I'm describing the singular object within that. Now, granted, sometimes trying to come up with the right word for the singular of (laughs) something in an array can be interesting. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I will just go with element. It's generic, but I also get like a full word. My brain cannot work with a single letter for something. It just can't. (laughs) That's like when people do elm for element and I'm like, elm, elm, the functional framework, elm, free elm. Or, or L. Oh yeah. that too. LM. Even if yeah, you I'm prepend it though, forward. if I'm like the element for the wrapper. Like EL wrapper. EL wrapper. Cause I've seen that a lot for like signifying you have a DOM element versus what like basically like with jQuery, it was used to be the dollar sign, but now I've seen more people using just L as a prefix to basically element button, element paragraph. Yeah. I think for me, it's mostly that that second E is taken out because like I've seen LM and I don't love it, but at least it sounds like the thing. Elm does not. I don't like Elm, just EL. Yeah. I've, I've, I've used EL before. That kind of works for me, but I could see an argument for writing it out. So initially yeah. with EL for me, I speak two languages. And so like I immediately think N, like the, mm. and so I'm like, oh, the rapper. So it makes sense. <laughs> Nice. We just started using element UI at work. And so like every element is like L card, L yep. button. And it's actually highly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so happy. My best friend, when he first started kind of like learning Spanish a little bit, this was in high school, he stopped. <laughs> he would just put like O at the end of everything. So he would just be like, oh, it's, you know, Carito and, you know, Plantito <laughs> and Dorito. And I was like, yes, that's exactly where Doritos come from. It's from door. <laughs> and then put Ito at the end. <laughs> you eat the door. That's what you're doing, you know? Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, I will say as far as like reusable view component libraries go, I feel like Elements docs are pretty nice compared to some others I've seen. Never use elements. Um, that was a side note. Yeah. I feel like more realistically, like when I'm writing code that I want to be readable at a glance, I'm writing for the me that's deep in the middle of trying to figure something out. And then I get 25 Slack messages and then I have to go back to my code. But like the IDX for me is reduce. Like I ran into this the other day where somebody was like, we could, I was pairing and they were like, we could use a for loop. But really, it would be better if we use Reduce. And I was like, better how? Performance-wise, readability-wise, like why does it always have to be Reduce? Like there are very limited contexts in which I can understand like at a glance what Reduce is doing. But -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of like really clever times to use Reduce that like a certain group of people are very proficient at, but I don't know that I would ever be in that group. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how big that group is. Yeah, I remember when I was first learning like map and Reduce, and I literally had to tape them to my monitor because I was like, I don't know when to use them. 
and I should because everyone keeps asking me. <laughs> that was always the worst. I should do that again because I've been going back to like, I'm just going to use if and for and <laughs> need to go back to making better, better choices. <laughs> yeah, I, really I, I, I get that. I really wish they implemented a native shuffle array. Every time I just want to be like, array dot shuffle. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh no, I need Lodash. Or I need to copy from Stack Overflow and make my own utility function. Lodash is like secretly the MVP that you don't ever want to use. You're like, like, I love you so much, Lodash. Why do you have to be here? <laughs> yeah, I avoid it. I avoid using it unless absolutely necessary. Because yeah, I think always aim for the the simplest possible solution. If you're trying to be clever, you're doing it wrong. That's fair. However, I know like with interviews, they typically want you to be clever, right? You know, I had an interview once where they asked, oh, show me something, like teach me something. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, this is the one cool thing I, I know. And I showed it to them and they're like, yeah, okay, that's cool. But you could do it this way. And you'd be like, well, all right. Well, if we're, we're just having a cool contest here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to think of it every time this happens from now on. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I think it's worth knowing other ways to do it because oftentimes while one way of doing the same thing is more appropriate in one situation, there are times where in context, another way will make more sense. And Absolutely. often that context is just, what is the style of the code base you're working in? Like, are people using this particular built-in method everywhere? If so, that means people probably have a pretty solid understanding of it at your company. Yes. Impact over being intelligent. That's what I like to say. I think as engineers, a lot of people like to feel intelligent, but don't realize the impact that it actually has. And so we need to focus on impact over intelligence. I think also, I don't remember if we said this, if I said this on the last episode, but I've been thinking a lot about how much recruiters, does this sound familiar, Ari? Like how much recruiters and like hiring managers place emphasis on like hiring the smartest and the best. And I'm like, why isn't uh, it enough to <clears throat> just be good enough at the job that they need you for? Mm. Yeah, I think you did say something along those lines. Yeah. But I'm a goldfish, so. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who might not be familiar with the goldfish reference, it refers to a short memory span, just in case <laughs> you're not familiar with. Oh my gosh. I thought I was about to learn it was from like some Pixar movie that I didn't watch or something. And not Actually, just like a in saying. 1967. Then. <laughs> oh. I was just like, I'm going to smile and sit in this chair. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> really good at smiling and sitting in this chair right now. <laughs> All right. So as we close the episode, Janelle, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter because that's where I live my life when I'm not coding. <laughs> so, so at Nellaro, N-E-L-L-A-R-R-O. And I have a website, but it's down right now because I am the everyday developer who's doesn't have time to update her portfolio. <laughs> I never had one. I, I love it. I, I might go to it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you want to see a just parked site, it's ChanelPazaro. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Beautiful. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, it's time to move on to this week's pick. Ari, would you like to go first? Sure. I have two picks this week. First one is The Crown on Netflix. I'm sure you've heard of it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's actually kind of interesting about The Crown is that you can start any season without having seen the previous season, and it will still mm. mostly make sense. Because each season is kind of a new era within Queen Elizabeth's reign. And so, like, for example, between season two and three, it's a completely different actress playing her because, you know, she's much older in season three. So mm. I actually totally skipped season two just because I wanted to get to the Princess Diana stuff. But I was like, oh, well, I should maybe not start at four, but three is probably OK. I could have started on four and it would have been fine, too. But it's 
I watched all of season three in one day. So wow, it is highly bingeable. <laughs> and and yeah, so I, the, the, the Crown's a historical documentary, right? Like completely it, factual? Yes. We'll say, I'm sure they take some dramatic liberties, <laughs> but it is all very much like based on real events. Like each episode kind of centers around a different historical event and then sort of like how the royal family responded to it. And for those who didn't get my reference, there was a big sort of hullabaloo about, I think, the royal family trying to get Netflix to put fiction on the show because they thought people would take it as basically historical facts. So that was my like joke at that. So okay. in case you Sorry. didn't know. <laughs> no, I just wanted to, I realized, I was like, I should clarify this context <laughs> I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> all right okay, so, so i can skip to the princess diana season is what i'm hearing because i was like yeah, I'm not, i don't know if i want to commit to like all those seasons that's where i was at yeah so you can totally skip you may okay. lose a little bit of context but not enough that you will be completely lost and won't enjoy the show so okay. and the second pick is a video game hyrule warriors age of calamity oh that's it, what i'm gonna do on pto it's fun. It's one of those kind of just like fun, mindless things, but also has great Legends of Zelda lore. You know, mm. I mostly played it for the lore, but it's also just a fun game to play as well. So that is my second pick. And that's, and that's on Switch, I believe. Yes, it is on Switch. Okay. Nintendo Switch. Great. All right, Tessa, what do you got for us this week? I also have a Switch rec. So Among Us just came out on Switch two days ago, and it's extremely buggy. But navigating with a real joystick instead of a virtual one is a game changer. And mm-hmm. there's a glitch where you can explore their ridiculously large new map if you're on Switch. You can join the game if you're not on Switch, but you can't see anything. My second pick, since you we were talking about empathy, I had an interview once where the interviewers gave half the time to me to ask questions almost half the time, which is pretty new to me, but it makes sense. Because you're theoretically, at least, interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you, right? And they were asking me about a previous teaching job. And they asked, how did I maintain work-life balance? And I thought that was a really interesting question. Because usually it's the candidate trying to think of a way to like sneak that question in there to get an idea without somehow looking bad for reasons that I don't agree with. But I digress. So that they were asking me that. I'm not saying, you know, go out and ask your interviews if you use that for the sake of looking good, just to look good. But that they asked me that kind of showed me where their mindset was at. So that really made an impact on me. So yeah, I think just keeping in mind that it's not a one-way street in terms of interviews, but like really living out that value is, I guess, one of my picks. And then my final pick, since we talked about empathy, is I've been reading this book, Against Empathy, by Paul Bloom that I saw Tatiana Mack recommend like a couple of years ago and I always meant to read it and I'm just getting around to it now. And it's kind of talking about how in everyday discourse, we kind of lump a bunch of words around being nice or kind or compassionate into this bucket of empathy and this idea that like you have to feel the way somebody else feels in order to understand their situation or behave in like a generous or compassionate way. And like the pitfalls that could lead to like, whether it's for example, with regards to donating to charities, or for example, with, I don't think this one came up in the book, but one I could think of is like representation on, in media, like, well, we can't have like people from this demographic because nobody watches, they won't be able to identify with that story. So it's an interesting read. And those are my picks. All right, Janelle, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so I had a list, so I'm gonna maybe cut it down a smidge. But so first, I'd like to say that N.K. Jemison is amazing. I'd never heard of N.K. Jemison up until a couple weeks ago when my lead was like, do you read? I was like, yes. And she was like, you know what? You should totally just try this person. And looks looked her up and she writes amazing Black fiction, like specifically like science fiction. And it is so cool to see like Afrofuturism in book form. And so I am like devouring these books. They're so cool and they make me very happy. So that is a pick for me. Another pick 
because you're doing, I'm going to piggyback off of Ari and do a Netflix thing. And I want to say Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun is amazing and hilarious. And I've watched it quite literally four times in a row. It's super funny. And it's just these like Australian dudes just having fun on Netflix. And it's great. Just don't watch the second episode. The second episode is kind of boring, but every other episode, fantastic. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. And hmm, I think I put another one on here that I think I would like to talk about. Oh, and couchgames.tv. I wanted to shout that out because that is my friend who wrote a bunch of like board games that you would like get typically, you know, like in like those super niche shops like Werewolf and like other kind of niche games. And it is made with View and Beautify and it's super fun to play. And the people who made the original game for all the games that are on couchgames.tv have actually kind of like been like, this is awesome. And they've like played games with him personally. And I just think that is the coolest thing. And it makes me super happy. And I have more, but I'll just, you know, maybe we could link them or something. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Great. And with that, I think it's down to me for picks. And so as far as the book goes on the sort of empathy conversation for those sort of looking to get more reading on this, and this is a topic I know that we sort of tend to shy away from, but there's a book called Difficult Conversations. That one, it's a little bit more academic, heavier read, but it does go into sort of the nuances of the kinds of conversations we often avoid and call it like strategies and ways to sort of process and deal with them and approach them. So if you're interested in that, be sure to check that out. As far as fun picks go, <laughs> for those you can't see, but Tessa's waving her difficult conversations book at me, which is very nice, very nice. So my fun pick is a game that's on Steam. It's a little bit old, but it's called The Escapist 2. And the premise is pretty nice. You basically, it's like an 8-bit game and you and your friends are in prison and you basically have to find ways to break out. And so you like accomplish little quests together or you'll like find ways to dig holes and stuff or cut the wire and it's a pretty fun co-op game. So looking for something fun to do with friends, be sure to check that out. It works on both Mac and PC. So I think that's a big win whenever I can find a Steam game that can work on both platforms. And with that, that is all for this week's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view.